Hi, and welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. The Black Sea is extremely deep. It's over 2,000 meters deep in its center. At least on the south coast, where I work, on the Turkish coast, it drops off extremely precipitously. On the north coast, it's a very, very gradual river infilled basin. But the other strange thing about the Black Sea is that it used to be a lake. That's Alexander Bauer, associate professor in the Department of Anthropology of Queens College, CUNY. He received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 2006. He currently co-directs an integrated regional archaeological project in the Black Sea coastal region of Sinop, Turkey, with Dr. Owen Dunan of California State University, Northridge. He's the editor of the International Journal of Cultural Property, an interdisciplinary journal focused on legal and political disputes over the ownership, use, appropriation, and preservation of cultural objects and practices that invariably arise when the interests of consumers, institutions, nations, and indigenous communities come into conflict. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with a topic in the news of late, the dismantling of monuments and statues. There's a long tradition of that in antiquity, and I was hoping you might give us an example or two, and what might be learned from the so-called damnation of memory by ancient people. Yeah, well, this has been a lot on my mind as well as on everyone's mind recently. I teach a class in Near Eastern archaeology. There's a wonderful bronze head of Naram Sin, who is the son of Sargon, and it's a beautiful bust, but the eyes are all gouged out. And this was almost certainly done in antiquity. The eyes were inlaid with stones and really looked very lifelike, so that they seem to have a power when you look at those piercing eyes in a sculpture. And when enemies came and dismantled the sculptures of the ruler whom they conquered, they often would chisel out the eyes and those important, powerful features that gave such a commanding presence to the sculptures. When thinking about iconoclasm in the past or the present, I can't help but think about David Friedberg's evocative book, The Power of Images, the way in which people have their psychological response to art and to imagery. He traces it in the more recent days, but in the past it was certainly the case that objects were defaced in this way to sort of rid them of their power. But then also objects were carted off, looted by conquering armies in the past, as well as in more recent days. And I think also of the Urnamu Stele from the great builder Urnamu of ancient Ur. The city of Ur was sacked by the Elamites at the end of the third millennium. And the Stele and other objects from this great moment that was called the Third Dynastic Period of Ur were all discovered by archaeologists in the city of Susa, which is in southwestern Iran. So we know that conquering armies were coming in and essentially looting the sculptures and the great monumental art of the places that they conquered as well. So it's been going on for millennia. Alex, so much of the popular understanding of archaeology is forged by such things as the film Indiana Jones, which of course has no correlation to the reality of what you do in the field. But one premise in it is destruction. And is it fair to say, as often is said, that archaeology is a form of controlled destruction? 
That's an interesting question. I think it's one of those things that's said in the first week of any intro to archaeology class is <laughs> we're the discipline that destroys its data as it investigates it. Yes, it is destruction. It is controlled destruction. It's documented destruction. Although sites are constantly in states of transformation. So the sites that we encounter as archaeologists look nothing like the way they did when they were actually lived in. Buildings have been rebuilt or remodeled or bulldozed or over the millennia, or animals have dug tunnels through them or rivers have flooded them. So to say that archaeology is destruction as if there were a pristine site that was dug there like a Pompeii is misleading. And in fact, a wonderful archaeologist named Gavin Lucas, who works in Iceland, discussed this idea of the rhetoric of destruction and argued, in fact, that archaeologists are really actually transforming the site, in a sense, digesting the site. As they dig it, they convert the physical site into notes and diagrams and photographs, which themselves can be essentially excavated by the reader or other scholars as they go through the excavation reports. Destruction, if we dig a site and we don't publish it, but if we do a good job inventorying our materials, publishing our data, making it available for other readers, scholars, and lay people alike, then our work is transformation of the site rather than destruction of it. Alex, tell us a little bit about what brought you to the Black Sea coast of Turkey and what's a typical day like on the site? Years prior to moving to the Black Sea, I had been working in Israel and Jordan, places that are extremely hot during the summer, wake up well before dawn, be on site by 4.30 or 5 a.m. before the sun comes up. And then by noon, it's so hot that you have to leave the site. And you break for lunch and take a shower, do your lab work in the afternoon. As I got older, I got tired of that, <laughs> that schedule. <laughs> After traveling around Turkey, one summer, I came upon the Black Sea, which was an oasis of cool breezes in the otherwise very hot Anatolian summer. And I have never looked back. When I work in Sinop, which is right on the coast, we still get up early, but it's about as early as I get up during the year with my small children. So I'm, you know, I'm up at six. After breakfast, we're on site at 7, 7.30, and we work there through lunch until around 2.30 or 3, and then, of course, do our laboratory work in the afternoons. Give us the flavor of the laboratory work, which I know for a fact can be at times tedious. It can be, as you said, a lot of it can be drudgery, dirty work, taking the bits of pottery fragments and other pieces and washing them, getting all the dirt off of them, laying them out, numbering them, putting half a dozen numbers or so on each piece, bagging them and tagging them, taking photographs, making sure that all the materials for each lot or a little parcel that we excavate are properly inventoried. The more fun part is actually picking over all this stuff and discussing with my colleagues, what do you think this is? Ah, look at this piece. Isn't that interesting? Something that points to connections to another region or is particularly diagnostic of a particular style or date. And that can be really thrilling. And then, of course, there's other laboratory work that we will do on-site scientific analyses as much as we can do within the confines of an on-site laboratory. Tell us a bit about the technology that you've introduced for use at the site. 
mapping technology has gotten a good deal better over time. And I'm sure some of your listeners have heard about LIDAR, which is this light-emitting radar system that is used very successfully in places like Mesoamerica, where there's a good deal of forest growth over standing monuments. LIDAR is usually mounted to a drone or small airplane and then flown over a region, and it can essentially penetrate through the canopy and map out the surface features of a large area quite quickly. We have used LIDAR a little bit, although not in our main excavation area, which is not covered over by growth. We do use drones equipped with high-definition cameras, taking thousands of photographs in a matter of minutes, and using these photo arrays to do what's called photogrammetry. A computer program will fit all these many, many photographs together, and you can create a very high quality 3D rendering of the site that you're working on, its walls, its features, the trench itself, and any other thing that you want to examine carefully and be able to manipulate in the laboratory or at home after the field season is over. One other piece of equipment that I personally use is a portable X-ray fluorescence spectrometer. I like to call it my X-ray gun because it's a handheld X-ray machine that you can use for elemental detection. So if there's an item or an object that you want to understand what it's made out of in terms of its chemical composition, you can point this gun at it and take a quick reading and it will give you the chemical readout of that object. And this can be helpful for figuring out where things originally came from, what their sources were, if something was imported from far away or is made out of a particular kind of material that's not local. You can identify this very quickly and in the field, which is really wonderful. Let's go back into the field before you get to the lab. Tell us about work in the trench and actually what is a trench? A trench is what it sounds like. It's the hole that you dig in the ground. Most of what we excavate doing archaeology is buried beneath the ground, sometimes many, many meters below the ground, depending on the environment and whether there's been a lot of sediment or dumping on top of it. We dig large holes for the most part so that we can get a good view into what it is that we're looking for. A whole house, we don't want to just catch a side of one wall. We'd like to get several rooms, for example, of a house. So a trench typically at its smallest, where I work, tends to be five meters on a side or the ones we dig in Sinope are actually 10 meters by five meters. So that's almost 30 feet by 15 feet. And that gives you not enough often, but it gives you good exposure into the structures that might be buried and chances of finding something that you can tell what it is. So when we're digging this, we're digging down with various tools. And as you get into the cultural matrix, so the stuff where you're seeing evidence of old objects, things that people used in the past, you can tell that you're in somewhere where people lived. The digging is usually quite slow centimeters at a time. And we don't dig with shovels, but we scrape the ground with trowels. The trowels that people use for laying bricks, those flat-edged cement trowels, that's the kind of thing, a pointing trowel, that's what we use in archaeology. That's our primary tool. And then there are other smaller tools like brushes and dental picks and things like that for very careful work. So it can be incredibly slow. 
You'll forgive me for asking a question that sounds like a treasure hunter's question, but can you tell us the most exciting revelation you've made in a dig? You know, that's always a question I get. And I'm sure I always, without fail, disappoint my listener. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't have something that shows up as that flashy front page news item. Although I would say that it's what you make of the information contained in the object that you have. I have to say that the excavation in Sinop, the very small area that we have dug, has turned up mind-bogglingly interesting evidence from various phases in the city's history. I myself am interested most in the Bronze Age, so the earliest phases of the site. We're talking about four or 5,000 years ago, which is a phase that, in fact, nobody assumed existed in the site where we're digging. But within the first, gosh, the first few hours of the first day we were digging, we came into a mixed fill, a heap, a jumbled up heap of stuff. It contained a huge amount of very, very early Bronze Age, maybe early Iron Age, handmade pottery. The stuff that when I look at it elsewhere or see it in museums, it dates to four and 5,000 years ago. And we found it in abundance right as soon as we started digging in Sinop. And so that blew me out of the water. I was very excited. We found small figurines that clearly date to that period and other things like that, which were really thrilling. When I was participating in a season at your site, one of my greatest pleasures was learning from the various experts in different fields. Can you talk a little bit about your colleagues? We have a range of specialists in faunal remains, animal remains, botanist who works on all the plants and plant remain seeds that are found at a site. There might be a human bone specialist who think we're going to be finding burials. There's conservators who help consolidate or safeguard wooden materials, metal materials, and other things that are particularly friable when brought out of the ground. And then there's, of course, specialists in different time periods. As I said, I focus on the Bronze Age, but we have other people who are specialists in Roman period archaeology or in the Byzantine period. So each one of them can bring their expertise to the different kinds of materials that we find. And it's the same with the specialists. When we dig, usually a specialist who works on animal bones, for example, doesn't themselves do much of the digging. They might come and help guide techniques so that we don't break the bones into small pieces so that's harder to tell. We will dig the material, the soil, and take all the animal bones out, separate it out, and put it into a separate bag the animal bone specialist will then examine it, try to identify what different species are there. And oftentimes this will be a back and forth. We will have certain hypotheses about what we think is going on at a site, and that animal bone specialist will be able to help give us some preliminary data about the material that we're finding. The Black Sea is such a mystery to so many, both in the States and even in Europe. Can you give us some background on that incredible body of water and the nations ringing it, both in antiquity and today. It's interesting. The Black Sea is not well known, and partly because I think for a very long time, modern geopolitics has turned the Black Sea into a border rather than a connecting body of water. And that's because the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, the Eastern European bloc, and then before it, the Russian Empire was on the north and west of the Black Sea. 
and the south and southeast of the Black Sea was the Ottoman Empire and now modern day Turkey and Greece and other countries of NATO. So there's always been, at least for the last couple of hundred years, certainly since the beginning of archaeology as a modern discipline, the Black Sea has been a borderland. And I think this has really affected the way in which the archaeology of the region has been not particularly well integrated. As you know, Alex, I'm really interested in underwater archaeology. Can you give us some speculative thinking about the Black Sea in that regard? Shipwreck archaeology is something that's relatively new. It's been going on since the early 1970s. The shipwreck archaeology that has dominated the field has been primarily in shallow water. Deep water investigations of shipwrecks, deeper than people can dive, have been only very recently investigated. And of course, the most famous is the Titanic, which Robert Ballard and others investigated in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And in fact, he was an early collaborator of ours in the Black Sea when we were starting our research there. There was another team out of the University of Rhode Island. They use a sonar in order to do a kind of LIDAR-like scan of the seafloor, which could then reveal ancient shipwrecks that were very deep. The Black Sea is extremely deep. It's over 2,000 meters deep in its center. At least on the south coast, where I work, on the Turkish coast, it drops off extremely precipitously. On the north coast, it's a very, very gradual river-infilled basin. But the other strange thing about the Black Sea is that it used to be a lake. It's fed by major, major rivers in Eastern Europe and the Western Russian plain. It used to be this inland lake that was landlocked. And at some point in the not too distant past, the waters broke through at the Bosporus, which is where Istanbul is. And the Black Sea was then connected to the world's ocean system. And salt water rushed into the Black Sea. If you know what happens when you make dressing, salad dressing, and you put olive oil and vinegar in the same glass, how the oil beads up, well, when it breaks through, the salt water rushes in and, in fact, sinks down to the bottom and lifts the less dense fresh water on top. That effectively killed the organisms that had been adapted for fresh water at the deep levels. And there is now an interface at about 150 meters down below the surface where there is a move to a denser water. And it's not easy for organisms or even light or oxygen to pass through that interface. And so you effectively get a kind of anoxic environment at very deep levels in the Black Sea. So that the theory goes, and this is something that had been hypothesized by Ballard and others who wanted to explore the deep Black Sea, that if a shipwreck were to sink below that interface, there would be no microorganisms that typically eat away at wood, plants, remains that easily deteriorate in other environments. So the theory goes, you would find a shipwreck still with the captain slumped over the tiller. How is the discipline of archeology span faring in the States? Is it challenging to recruit graduate students? What's the status of the field from your perspective? <laughs> this is a really interesting question because on one hand, there are probably too many going on to graduate work. And every time somebody says they want to go to graduate school in archaeology, I do my best within reason to try to dissuade them just because there are so few jobs out there for 
archaeologists that there are too many PhDs for the jobs available. Now, I'll qualify this. There are certainly too many PhDs for the academic jobs that are available to them. There are jobs that archaeologists can and do do important work that's not in academic archaeology, that is in works for the National Park Service, conserving sites, doing what's so-called contract archaeology or what's called cultural resource management, in which sites are investigated before, say, a public works project like a highway or a bridge is being built or a dam that's being constructed. So evaluations of whether cultural materials are going to be destroyed in that process and have to bring in a team of archaeologists to do that. So there are opportunities for archaeologists to work, but it is not an easy job track. And so in some ways, I think only those who really, really can't think of anything else they want to do should do a PhD in archaeology. That said, undergraduate archaeology, I think it's a wonderful discipline for undergraduates in many, many ways. And it's a very important and I think really wonderful base for a whole range of pursuits, whether or not you're actually pursuing archaeology in your long-term career goals. I'm curious what you say to administrators when resources are tight. What are the reasons you give in defense of the field? Two reasons, actually. Now, first, the skills one learns in archaeology are really broadly applicable to a range of fields. And so that an undergraduate or even a high school level, archaeology is a discipline that I think has tremendous value. I mean, over the past decade or so, so much educational policy has been on promoting STEM fields. This is science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, more recently, advocates of humanities have argued for adding an A to this for arts in that acronym to make it STEAM. And there's really arguably no better field than archaeology to build a STEAM curriculum around because it involves so many different kinds of thinking and data that need to be integrated. In a broader way, thinking about why should archaeology continue to exist, I think is also no better illustrated by the present moment or even the past months and years. George Orwell wrote in 1984, famously, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. And the passage goes on. Past events, it is argued, have no objective existence, but survive only in written records and in human memories. The past is whatever the records and the memories agree upon. And since the party is in full control of all records and in equally full control of the minds of its members, it follows that the past is whatever the party chooses to make it. The power of archaeology is that it can get at and reveal history that is not in the history books. And it can challenge us in terms of our received understandings of the past. And therefore, it can, can challenge us to envision different futures. And I think that's an incredibly important thing, especially now. Yes, especially with Attorney General Barr at the helm. <laughs> yes. Alex, thank you so much for making time today with a busy schedule, with kids at home, and all the rest of your obligations. I really enjoyed it and appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Alexander Bauer, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology of Queens College, CUNY. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow the show at Apple Podcasts, 
Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts if you care to, which helps other listeners find their way to us.